seated. Good morning. We are back in our series in the book of Mark. Thank you again to uh, Pastor Tommy Carr for filling in last week. We are in Mark chapter 6 verses 14 through 29 today. Now if you remember last time we just left Jesus and his disciples in Nazareth where they witnessed marvelous unbelief. And this unbelief was coming from Jesus' own family, his own friends, and that was so remarkable, it caused Jesus to marvel at it. And after that, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, and they uh, did this in verse 12 to 13. It says, They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. And the the, the part where we stop there, the dun-dun-dun moment picks up in verse 14. And King Herod heard of it. King Herod was listening. He heard about the miracle. So let's pick up where we left off here. Mark 6, 6, uh, 14 through 29. Read along with me, if you will. Now King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asking, said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head back on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came, took his body, and laid it in the tomb. Now if I was to tell you a story about a beautiful princess who approached the king, and the king looked her and he said, What is your request? Even up to half of my kingdom I will give it to you. Which story am I talking about? Well, Esther, of course, I'm talking about Esther, the Queen Esther. That should have been easy. You should have, you know, you should have been able to get that one. Well, what about the story about a wicked queen who hates God's prophet? He hates, she hates God's prophet so much she wants his head on a platter. Which story am I talking about? 
Well, that's Jezebel and Elijah. Or finally, how about a king who marries his brother's wife, and then he's haunted by a ghost. He's haunted by the past of what he's done. Well, that's Shakespeare. (laughs) That's Hamlet. And I mention that only because this is a powerful story with powerful illusions. These are... These are stories that invoke wonderful thoughts in our mind. I mean, this is so embedded in our culture, this idea of a corrupt king, a corrupt ruler, corrupt women. This is history being played out. Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. And so it resonates with us to our very core. If you said, I've heard that story before, you have. You have. Because sinful humans historically are pretty cliche, aren't we? <laughs> uh, we're not, there's nothing new under the sun. This is the, you know, in the immortal words of Mrs. Potts, tale as old as time, right? Tale as old as time. And so here we have another story, another sinful story of a corrupt ruler. We have an ancient Game of Thrones, a political action thriller with intrigue and murder and romance. And at the heart of the story is John the Baptizer and Herod the Fox. Now, just looking briefly here, if we zoom back and look at the Herodian family tree, we see something. This is a soap opera, okay? No fewer than four rulers in the Bible bear the name Herod in the New Testament alone. And the Herod in our story is named Herod Antipas. So you'll hear me refer to him as Antipas throughout. He was the second of the four sons whose father was Herod the Great, okay? Herod the Great is infamous as the one who ordered the massacre of the innocents, Back in Matthew 2, in which he had all boys, two and under, near Bethlehem, slaughtered. And in the midst of that genocide, just for good measure, he had one of his own sons killed. The emperor Augustus remarked, it is better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because Herod the Great was a Jew, and so he wouldn't kill pigs, but he would kill his own children. In fact, throughout his life, he had uh, three of his sons killed and others during his reign. He also had ten wives, with Antipas being the son of the fourth wife, Malthace. Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, Antipas's half-brother, who was murdered by his father, Herod. Herodias was thus a granddaughter of Herod the Great and a niece of Herod Antipas. <laughs> so if you're following along with the, the crooked, wicked, familial relations, good on you, right? It's, this is a tangled web of really nasty stuff. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because Antipas himself is very cunning. And he reveals his cunning nature in the way he persuades Herodias. This is the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, the son of Herod the Great's third wife. And he, he says, divorce your husband, come be my wife. And she says, okay. But in order to marry her, he has to first jilt his current wife, who is the, the daughter of King of Nabatea, and in reprisal, the king of Nabatea, Eratos, later on will inflict a crushing blow upon his whole kingdom. So, so this is awful. I mean, it's a really nasty story. You could see this playing out in a soap opera. You could see it playing out in a, a you know, lifetime historical movie or something like that. Now, we're going to insert a righteous, holy prophet of God into this gruesome scenario, into this sinful, gross scenario. And we're going to have some problems. It's interesting to note that there are only two passages in the entire Gospel of Mark, only two passages in all of Mark that are not about Jesus. And both of them are about John the Baptist. 
Now, if we go back in Mark 1, John is seen as the forerunner of Jesus. He's the herald of Christ. He is coming. He says, behold, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. This is the guy. He's greater than I am. And he's proclaiming the, the coming of the king. Well, Antipas then takes him and imprisons him. Now, the second mention here is in Mark 6, what we just read. And this is thought of really of the first passion narrative in Mark. It's really the, he's really the forerunner of Christ in his passion as well in, in the way he has died. Think about this. Both John and Jesus are killed by political tyrants who fear them. And they even both vacillate at the end. They, they really don't want to kill John and Jesus, but they end up doing it. Eventually, due to political pressure, they succumb due to their sin. Now, in Pilate's case, his wife comes to him and says, hey, don't kill Jesus. And in this case, Herod's wife, Herodias, comes to him and says, hey, we're going to kill Jesus. I mean, we're going to kill John. Right. So you see the types, the shadows, the illusions. Again, Antipas acquiesces, acquiesces to Herodias and Pilate acquiesces to the mob. And John's martyrdom also is going to prefigure and exemplify the consequences of us as disciples of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus, and we live in a world of power, of greed, of decadence, of rulers, corrupt individuals. And it's no coincidence that Mark sandwiches right between here. You might say, well, that's kind of a weird little pairing here. We just left the disciples going out, and then we have the story of John's beheading. And then we picks right back up, guess what, with the disciples coming back in. And so Mark is saying, listen, if you want to be a follower of Christ, let me just give you a little heads up here. It's not all miracles. It's not all preaching. It's not all wonders. There's also beheadings that take place. Because those who bear the name of Christ will suffer the same fate our master did. We should expect to suffer as he suffered. The account before us today begins not, however, with a cunning, in-control individual. We actually have a paranoid and suspicious king on the throne. Herod thinks that John, who he had killed, he's so convinced of it, he thinks John's back to haunt him in the form of Jesus. They come to him, the disciples are doing the deeds, you know, they're healing, they're exorcisms, all of it. He's thinking, didn't I kill that guy? I, I, didn't I kill him? I thought I, I killed him. Is he loose? Is he back? Did he resurrect? That sounds like something John would be up to. Then the rest of the passage serves as a retelling of the events leading up to John's death. So that's what we're going to do. The rest of the time, we're going to focus on this. We're going to look at the story. And there's three points of interest for us today. The first point is this. It's the baptizer's impact upon Herod. The second is Herod's sinful response. And the third is the tragic end of the fox. Now, the first thing to notice about John, his influence on Herod, is actually something to notice about Jesus. You see, because John was the forerunner of Jesus, he modeled the actions and character of our Lord. He was a righteous and holy man. He comes in the power and spirit of Elijah. And so when Jesus appears on the scene, they go, maybe it's Elijah. (laughs) Maybe it's Elijah. Come back. And others go, no, no, no. He's just a prophet. He's a prophet, but he's not Elijah. But Herod goes, no, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I know it's John. I was with John. I listened to John gladly. I like John. This is John back. John who said he must increase, but I must decrease. He would be the first one to say, you have no idea. (laughs) I am so far below Jesus. I am not even able to untie his sandals. That's how low I am to Jesus. 
You could not even think. If you knew him, you would never compare him to me. But you see, this is the highest honor any of us could ever have. To be mistaken for our Lord is the greatest honor. Oh, that people would look at our church, would look at us and say, you know, they look like Jesus. They sound like Jesus. They love like Jesus. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The second thing is John was not a man pleaser. He was a God pleaser. And though John sought no honor, he has great honor. We read, what does it say? Herod feared John. Now, if you, if you think about this, it's a little laughable. The, the cunning fox, the ruler, the manipulator, the monarch, he feared John. Now, who was John? John was a, a wild curbside prophet. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. I mean, he was, who was John? John was nothing to be feared. But because of John's character and his fire, that made him the true king. You see, the true king, Herod, actually was, was nothing compared to the true king, which was John. He was a trembling, weak king who saw ghosts in every shadow, but John was more royal than ever the royal Herod. And it's a great reminder for us to not be envious of the world. It's so easy in this life to uh, want what our neighbors have, to want things that we don't have, and to be envious of, of worldly delights. But John teaches us one thing. He says, don't be envious of worldly fame. We're children of the true king. And one day, all of us will have more honor than we know what to do with. We'll have more riches than we could ever imagine. And so look to Christ. By simply living this simple, holy, righteous, quiet life that pleases the Lord, we will obtain glory and honor. You might say, I have done nothing mighty in my life. I, I'm a simple person and my occupation's not wonderful. You know, it's just this simple job I have. And how, how will I uh, be like John? How can I ever obtain, you know, honor for myself or, or, or for the Lord? Well, look at John. Did, did he ever, was there ever recorded a single miracle that John did in all the Gospels? No, no. And yet Jesus says of him in Luke seven twenty eight. he says this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so if you want to be greater than John, what do you have to do? You have to become less. You see, that's the upside down, backwards reality of the kingdom of God. If you want to be greater than John, then be the least in the kingdom. Because then you'll be first. Christ must become more. You must become less. The reformer Count Zinzendorf, wonderful name. Count Zinzendorf, he said this. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. <laughs> you see, you may be forgotten by the world. You'll be remembered for all eternity in the halls of heaven, written in the Lamb's book of life. Thirdly, we notice why Herod feared John. Why did he fear John? What was it about John that was so scary? Verse 20, because he knew he was a righteous and holy man. He feared John because he was holy. Herod was not holy. He was not righteous. He admired justice. He admired courage. He admired the holy life that John led. He admired the ideals of John, but he didn't live them out. You see, like many, Herod had respect for religion. He, he liked John's message, but he didn't necessarily like the implications of it. He, he said, well, that's wonderful that some people live like that, isn't it? That's, that's great. It's like when you go to the zoo and... You see the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, and they're all behind the, you know, the fences, and you go, what power, what grace. But then if you came home, you would not admire them in your backyard, right? Loose. 
And so he has John here, and, and, and he likes him caged. He likes John as a domesticated little lion, and he admires him from a distance. Yes, oh, I like that, John. So people come, and they say, you know, I like that Jesus, but I don't like the people when they you know, tell me how to live my life. I like that Jesus, but I don't like those Christians, how they take this stuff too far. You know, they just take it too seriously. Go back to your little cages, and, you know, we'll admire you there. So Herod feared John. He tolerated John. He liked the message. He was there. He even attempted to keep John safe from Herodias. He locked him up. He thought, maybe if I keep that lion tamed, if I keep him locked up, maybe Herodias will forget about him. But he underestimated his wife's malice, right? She had left her husband for him. He should have known she was just as foxy and crafty as himself. Our fourth point about Herod was that he actually listened. And you go, well, what does that mean? He actually, well, he actually listened. And it says he actually enjoyed hearing John speak. That's, that's remarkable. Listen to this verse, verse 20, the end of it. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. He liked it. This is a remarkable thing. You, again, hearing and receiving, as we've looked at before, are two different things. You see, he heard John's message, but he was perplexed by it. He, he, you know, the message of holiness and repentance, this struck a chord with Herod, but he's like, but what's it about? What's all that stuff about? You know, I'm the king. Can you imagine, Herod, what do I have to repent of? What do I have to be sorry for? I'm the king. I make the rules. Lamb of God that takes takes away the sin of the world. What is that about? I like the idea of it, but why do I need that? And yet, if we might say one good thing about Herod, he kept listening. He kept listening. He kept coming to church. He kept showing up. Why did he do that? Well, because deep down his conscience was being softened. You see, the great hammer of the law was being wielded by a holy and righteous man, and it was chiseling away at him. That's why he didn't want to kill John. Maybe he couldn't put his finger on it. Maybe he was puzzled. Why is it I like John so much? What is it about that message? Well, he's chiseling away at him. He's getting there. You know, and some, some will say, well, you know, I'll never go back to that church again. That preacher cuts too close to home. It was almost like that preacher was talking directly to me. He gets too personal. But it says here that John looked Herod face to face and he told him, it's not right what you're doing. You, you can't take your brother's wife like that. That's not right. You can't do that. Now, what, can you imagine uh, what Christians would say about this today? How, how dare that pastor judge me like that? You can't tell me that to my face, pastor. You can't say that. You can't call me out like that. But John says, yeah, we can and we must. Not because John is doing it out of hatred or out of envy or anything like that or malice. It's out of love for Herod. He's doing it because he knows that if Herod does not turn from this one sin, it will inevitably lead to countless more. You see, sin is like a ripple effect. You take a little rock and you have a little pebble and you throw it in the lake and you go, this sin won't hurt anybody. And time and time again, the ripples come out and they get bigger and larger and larger. And I know that because I deal with youth and I deal with teenagers and those little sins that their parents have committed, those little sins that their friends commit always have ripples, always affect everybody. The great Protestant reformer, Hugh Latimer, he found out that he was going to preach before King Henry VIII. If you know about Henry VIII, this was a terrifying thing to do. And so he had this great responsibility to bring a message for the king. And he realized pretty early on that the message God wants me to, to bring to King Henry VIII is not the message he's going to want to hear. And so he got up there and he began his sermon. Latimer, 
Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high king, Henry VIII? He has power to command you to be sent to prison. He can have your head cut off if it pleases him. Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? Then he paused and he stopped and he said, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the king of kings and the lord of lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give account for yourself? Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. Well, did King Henry VIII have his head lopped off? No, he he said, let us hear from honest Hugh Latimer. You see, even bad men admire those who tell them the truth. People may not like the truth. They may not always be easy to hear, but they will admire them even if they chop off their heads right after. (laughs) So Herod hears, as so many hear, and he's perplexed. He was almost persuaded, yet he did not give up the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He loved his sin. He found himself like a dog who's in a library, and he says, get away with these books, I'll take a bone. He's salivating for the bone. He had all the wisdom of John, all of the wisdom, the letters, the, the pretty words, get away with that, I'll have my bone. This is the case with all who hear the gospel and yet fail to believe they must be weaned from their sins, but they say, no, I'll take the milk. I'll keep the milk. They're addicted to their own vices. They say, wouldn't it be nice if I could just get out of that sin or if I could stop doing that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And yet they don't take the steps necessary to be set free. They linger on the edge of faith and never take the leap. They want to be free. They can't be free. They're almost out of Sodom. They are feeling the heat of the blaze at their back and they turn around like Lot's wife. We pass up holidays at sea to play with mud pies, in the words of Lewis. So that's the effect of God's word. This is John's effect on him, his effect of a holy and righteous individual wielding the hammer of the law. But we have to move past that, sadly, to Herod's sinful response. And the first sinful response is this. Though he cared for John, he never actually looked past John. And that's the saddest thing about the whole story is that he, he, he liked John. He liked the message. John said, behold, the Lamb of God. And Herod said, yeah, I know John, but who's this Jesus fellow I've been hearing about? This is partly why in our day and age we have this uh, really dumb idea of celebrity preachers. People, we, you know, these preachers we put on pedestals. And we go, oh, I'll only listen to that preacher. I'll listen to him. You don't need to do that. We must decrease. Christ must increase. It is to Christ you must Go. And if the preacher is not pointing you to the cross, then the end of all our ministry will never be Christ. The end of all ministry must be Christ. And you see, Herod just couldn't see that. He couldn't understand it. It's one thing to ask your pastor or godly friends for advice, but I'm here to tell you, go to the source. Go to the source. There's no priest needed here. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, go to him directly to seek from him pardon, from him redemption, from him a change of heart, from him a new life. For vain it will be if you have listened to the most faithful of preachers and have not listened to the preacher's master and obeyed his gospel. You see, if you do that, you will be nothing more than Herod's. Your whole life, you will sit in that pew and you'll be nothing more like Herod. You will be perplexed if you are not led to Jesus Christ. The second sinful response is that though Herod admired John's goodness, he actually had none in himself. (laughs) 
Jesus encounters Herod later on in the Gospels. Some of the Pharisees come to Jesus. They say, Jesus, Herod wants you dead. Jesus, Herod's coming. He's going to kill you. Now listen to what Jesus says in Luke 13, 32. He says, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. You see, Jesus knew all about Herod. He knew he was a foxy man. He was selfish. He was prideful. He was full of these little tricks. And so Jesus says, you listen up, you fox. We're going to have our time where we're going to talk. But you, it's not now. I'm doing, my, I'm doing the kingdom work. But you just wait when I have an audience with you. And this is Herod's fatal flaw. It's a fatal flaw. He has no foundation of holiness. No foundation of holiness. It's a damning flaw. Ultimately, it will condemn him utterly. To know the right, to know what's right, and then to utterly, completely disregard it is the most heinous of sins. To trample it underfoot is wicked. And if we all sat here and thought long enough, we know of many such foxy people in the world today, don't we? Those who admire goodness, on the outside they look really, really nice, but inwardly they are corrupt and wily as can be. The third sinful response is that Herod remained under the sway of sin. He had given himself up to Herodias. She was his niece, been married to his brother, had children by his brother, and yet he took her away to be his wife. That's incest, adultery, horrible sin. But it was lust. It had bound him. He was enslaved now to lust for his own sin. And we see it sickeningly play out in this salacious dance, this really awful dance from, from his stepdaughter Salome and his response. You see, Herodias now is going to use her own daughter in the story. She sends her daughter Salome in to debase herself in a carnal dance before Antipas and all of his chief men. And in their commotion, in their fur, and in their, their crazy drunken stupors, he says... Ask whatever you wish. Up to the kingdom. I'll give you whatever you want. I like your dance so much. She runs out. The plan has worked. Mom, what do you want? Herodias responds, the head of John the Baptist. Now, in the daughter, Salome, she runs in, and the Greek is very suspenseful. Okay? The Greek turns this up to 11. Listen to it. It says, literally, I desire that at once... You give to me, upon a platter, dot, 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 the head of John the Baptist. You know, you can feel the, the pin drop of that moment, his birthday party. And now Herod is stuck. What is he going to do? If he says yes, his favorite pet, the baptizer, is no longer going to be there to entertain and perplex him, keep him happy. But if he says no, his pride would be damaged. He's made the vow in front of all his friends. My pride, my, my precious pride. And so he's bound to this vow and the trickery of his wife and stepdaughter wins the day. If only he had listened to John. If only he had listened to John. And I tell you now, beloved, whatever sin is hiding in your heart right now, whatever sin you would be so ashamed for all of us to find out, God knows about it. He already knows about it. He knows about it and more. And I urge you to flee from it now while there is time. Because like Herod, there will come a day when there is no time. There is no more chance to flee from that sin. As the baptizer says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
final point today is Herod's faulty idea of religion. You see, Herod, although he listened to John gladly, he was perplexed. That, he had a religion that was based on fear and not on love. It does not say that, God, that Herod feared God, but that he feared John. He did not love John. He feared John. And this is, this is such an important point because there are so many people today for whom this rings true. Their entire Christian life, their entire religious experience is based solely on fear. Fear of man, fear of them being judged, not accepted, something they might say, something they might do, fear of being ostracized in and outside of the church. They have fear of judgment. They say, if I just do enough good, I'll get back on the treadmill of works. And if I just work hard enough, God, how could he not love me? How could God not love me? You see, that will never save you from God's wrath. The fountain of Christ is love and grace. Fear is not the way. Fear of hell, death, judgment, this is poor soil for your faith to grow. It's poor soil. It will not grow there. If you plant your hope in these things, you will be no better than Herod at the end of the day. There was a little boy named Matthew. He was a precocious child. He didn't think first. He acted first. Did he want comic books? Well, go take them. I'll go get comic books. Late one night, his father heard him upstairs. He should have been asleep. He, he walked upstairs. Matthew, what are, you, what are you doing up here? Matthew was sitting down reading comic books. Matthew, where did you get these? The father asked. From the barn, said Matthew. You see, he had stolen them from a neighbor's barn where he kept the comic books. The boy apologized, made recompense, and that was that. Well, a month later, the father was praying with his children when all of a sudden, Matthew, what's that in your bottom drawer? The boy's bedroom dresser was filled with stacks and stacks of comic books. Where'd you get these? The father roared. Effortlessly, guiltlessly, the boy replied, from the library. You took them out or did you just take them? The father asked. Yeah, Matthew answered, that. Now the librarian was named Mrs. Outlaw and she was magnificent. Her spine was composed not of bone, but of rectitude. Her eyes would flash divine lightning. Smoke and fire would issue forth from her nostrils. She was an absolutely moral woman. And the next morning, the father brought Matthew to the library and said, Have you noticed some comics missing lately? Two tablets of stone did Mrs. Outlaw carry as she crossed her arms, glared at Matthew. My son is the culprit, said the father. Do what you want with them. For 15 minutes, the father paced outside. Surely fire from the holy mountain would refine his son, Matthew, for the better. The door flung open. Little Matthew came out with eyes wide as can be. Did she have something to say to you? The little boy nodded. Well, I have something to say to you as well. Stealing is a primordial sin, Matthew. One sin will lead to another. Do you understand? The boy again nodded. Ten months later, the father found another trove of comics in Matthew's room. There had to be another law. There had to be another punishment. This time, there had to be a spanking. Kids, are you listening? Matthew, the father said sternly, go into my study. Wait for me there. No punishment should be done in anger. So the father calmed himself. Five swats. Five swats, not too few or the medicine wouldn't take. Too many he would raise in his child in anger that would not soon be quenched. The father repeated the laws, the consequences. I'm going to spank you now, Matthew. Father brought his hand down and it immediately stung. The boy went stiff as a board. 
two, three, four. Matthew didn't cry. He refused. Five. Father told him, I'm going to leave you alone. I'll be back in a moment. He did not want to sit there as his son cried. He was going to give him the dignity of being alone. But once the father left the study, he himself burst into tears. He covered his face and he sobbed so loud his wife heard him from down the hall. He went to the bathroom, washed his face, returned to the study, and he knew that discipline must never end in pain. He said, if I touch my son to hurt him, I must now touch him to love him. I love you, Matthew. I will always love you. Throughout the years, the father came to believe this worked because Matthew never stole again. All the way up through high school, not one single thing. And one day, the kids were in the car. They were older now. And the kids were in the car today, the mom said. You, you want to hear this? They were talking about things they did as kids. The father said, oh, yeah, what are they? Well, one of the daughters said she used to steal cookies from the, from the kitchen. And another daughter said, I used to take mom's lipstick and smear it all over my face. And Matthew said, yeah, how about those comic books? <laughs> the mother said, I was so glad you stopped stealing, Matthew. You know why I stopped stealing? Matthew said, One of his sisters replied, yeah, because daddy spanked you. No, said Matthew, because daddy cried. You see, it's not the administration of the law, but ultimately it's mercy and grace that transfigures us on God's holy mountain. It is the law that drives us into our father's study, but it is grace that sends Jesus to receive the lashings in our place. And so you must replace your fear today with love. You must replace your doubt with faith. The hot tears of Christ have been shed in my place and in your place. Which leads to our final last point, the tragic end of the fox. I wish Herod had an happy ending. I thought about this last night. Think about poor Herod. His dad had ten wives and... Uh, he was killing brothers. And I mean, imagine being Herod growing up in that lifestyle. We have to stand back and go, poor Herod. But yet he turned wicked. He let that sin, he let that anger fester within him. And having rejected and killed the forerunner of Christ, he later, we're later told that he does get to meet with Jesus. At this point, his heart is too hard to receive him. Listen to Luke 23, 8, 11 as we close. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he heard about him he was hoping to see some sign done from him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests, the scribes, stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing, and they sent him back to Pilate. He could have sought forgiveness, couldn't he have? Instead of doing that, he mocked the king of glory, the Lamb of God, the one that John had spoken of so many times. He's the Lamb of God. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. Stood before Herod. And he rejected John. He rejected the one John said was greater than himself. And so we end tragically. God has nothing more to say to the fox. We're told Jesus is silent before him. And here is my warning to you today. He may be silent before you as well. Unless you silence your sin, it will eventually deafen your ears and harden your heart. And one day when you stand before God's throne and Satan is lobbing all of his accusations against you, Jesus will not be in the witness stand to defend you. He will be silent and you will stand condemned. Herod's life ended poorly. He was a bad king. 
Caligula himself banished him to Gaul with Herodias. If Caligula thinks you're bad, you know you're bad. And many a man has given up Christ and traded the whole world for his soul only to end up with losing both. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So hear this. Set your eyes upon Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. Listen to what John says. Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world, your sin. Repent of your sin. Run from it. Flee from it. Silence them now. Run to the nail-pierced arms of Christ. Be saved. Cry out, Lord, help me to cleanse my way. Help me to be holy. Help me possess the righteousness I admire, the holiness I respect. Help me in my puzzlement. Let me do everything that you would have me do. Take me. Make me yours. And then what do you do? You rejoice. You rejoice in him who has made you holy. Turn from the fox. Look to the lamb. May God bless you, my dear friends, for the name of Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many of us here who used to be Herod. Such were some of these. We were living our own lives, living in sin, wallowing in the mud. Lord, we had no vision of you. We had heard John. We had heard the Baptist. We had heard the words. We had heard the gospel. It didn't, didn't mean anything to us. And then your Holy Spirit came and made us alive. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that again today. None of this will mean anything if your Holy Spirit does not move in our hearts and open our eyes and open our ears. And so help us to leave this place energized, excited about your word and looking ultimately to the Christ, to the, the, the master, the king, the great shepherd, the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. It is to him we praise, to him we come, and to him we will now sing. Let's do that just now. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, There's a Redeemer. Mm-hmm.